Well, last week, two major holidays were celebrated. Last Sunday was National Sanctity of Human Life Day. This holiday was created in response to the legalization of on-demand abortion through the famous Supreme Court case of Roe v. Wade. President Ronald Reagan officially designated National Sanctity of Human Life Day back in 1984. However, one year prior, President Reagan designated the other major holiday we celebrated last week, that being Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, or as we often refer to it, MLK Day. And this holiday was created to commemorate Dr. King's life and work to end the deep and dark scourge of racism in America. And you see, both of these holidays flow out of the deep conviction that all human beings have inherent value, dignity, and worth. And the need for both holidays speaks to the, hu- sorry, the terrible human record of failing to recognize that inherent value, dignity, and worth. And so you might ask, well, where does this value, this dignity, this worth, where does it come from? It comes from being the special creation of God, not having evolved from some primordial soup. No, it's what we call being made in the image of God, what theologians call the imago Dei, the crown of creation. And that's what we zoom in on. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28 this week, seeing the image of God in the special creation of humanity. And so this morning's sermon, you could summarize pretty simply as the following. You were made in the image of God to imitate God and live forever with God. You were made in the image of God to imitate God and live forever with God. And that that will actually be our three points. You're made one in the image of God, two to imitate God, three to live forever with God. If we leave that on the screen for just a second, you'll see maybe a different way of saying what it means to be in the image of God. The image of God, the first part, is in your being, your essence, what it means to be a person. Second, to imitate God refers more to your activity, what you've been called and commissioned to do as a person. And then three, to live forever with God, the relationship that God has created you for. So it might be being activity, relationship, you could think of it in those ways as well. Uh, We won't linger there, but we'll unpack it as we go. So let's get started with the first point. You are made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. Look back at your copy of the scriptures, Genesis 1. Let's see this clearly in the Bible because that's where all of the authority lies. We read in verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Drop down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Verse 26 uses this phrase, the the image and likeness. The image and likeness of God. What does that mean? It means you reflect and represent God. In the ancient Near East, what would happen is as a king would conquer an area, 
he would set up a statue of himself on the highest mountains, the highest hills, so that everyone who was in the conquered area could at any point look up and see an image, a representation of the king, and say, oh, I'm in his land now. He's the true king. And so when God creates us in his image, places us on the earth, it's so that everything and everyone in creation will look and see you as a human being, an image bearer, the crown of creation, and see, oh, I see in you a representation of who the true king is. I'm not the king, he's the king. This means that in God's eyes, every human being is like nobility. There's no class of person who's not endowed with human dignity and human rights and immense value and worth. But this image of God, the imago Dei, also means that as a human, you're a spiritual being. You're endowed with rationality, with consciousness, with a moral law written onto your heart, that you're an emotional being. This makes you distinct from animals or anything else in the created order. And these ideas are sort of, you know, I've told you over and over, Genesis is the acorn, the seed form of what's going to expand into a sprawling oak tree of the whole rest of the Bible. We'll continue to say that over and over. And so let me just show you briefly, kind of across some passages in the scriptures, where this idea of the image of God is explained and further developed. Psalm 8 I read at the outset, we'll go back there a couple of times today, verses 3 through 5 are on the screen. We read, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You're the crown of creation. You're above every other part of creation to reflect and represent God in a way that no other part of the created order does. Romans 2, we read about the moral law that's written onto every human heart, whether they're a Christian, whether or not they're not a Christian, whether they've read the Bible, whether they haven't. Look how Paul writes this. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show, here it is, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, all humans have God's moral law written onto their heart. It comes from being created in God's image, not some evolutionary scheme. Genesis 9, we see the uh, homicide condemned because it's mankind that's made in the image of God. We read, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That's why. Because you're the crown of creation. James 3 We see commands about how we speak of others because they're made in the image of God. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. See, this theme throughout the Bible is continually developed that you must see the image of God in your fellow man. And in yourself. It's easy for us to not see it in others, 
And it's also easy to not see it in ourselves and beat ourselves up and feel that we do not have value, we do not have dignity, we do not have worth, and friend, you do. You're nobility in God's eyes. And sadly, this Christian doctrine of the imago Dei has been abandoned in our world of late. It is this doctrine of the image of God that both grounds and preserves human dignity and human rights. It grounds and preserves human rights. And in the 21st century, as we saw a denial of God on a global scale that was really unprecedented previously, we also saw the denial of human rights on a global scale. You've got to understand that when belief in God dies, so also does belief in human rights and human dignity. Just to to briefly survey the bloodiest century in the history of the world, the 21st century, 1900 to 2000, you go back and think of tens of millions of innocent people put to death in Soviet Russia of the atrocities of Nazi Germany, of Pol Pot in Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge and the genocide that happened there, the South African apartheid, the current genocide happening of the Uyghurs in China. Say, Justin, that's a Muslim population. Why do we care so much about that? Because they're made in the image of God. They're the crown of creation, all humans. And I've not begun to touch the 50 plus million babies that have been murdered in America. You see like the unraveling of a thread on a sweater you pull out. When the belief in God dies, so does the commitment to human dignity and human rights. One always follows the other. And it's important that we not merely affirm the Imago Dei, the image of God, but we see that this creates a moral obligation that we fight against injustice. Wherever it's being done, wherever it's being perpetrated, where the image of God is not being seen and valued, we need to think through this as individual families. How do we do this? Think through it as a church. How do we do this? Think through the other institution of government and how do we fight for the image of God to be seen and valued and appreciated through governmental structures. Friends, this is why we as a church have the storehouse to see the image of God in people. This is why we're regularly sending people downtown to assist and serve at the missions in downtown Indy. This is why we're regularly seeking to serve refugees, whether they're here or on the mission trips that Ben and I led out to see you guys in Germany and helping to serve all of the refugees there, and our missionaries are carrying this out. It's why we have a benevolence fund. It's why many of you I know serve at uh, the life centers, and you volunteer to help those with unplanned pregnancies and how to see the image of God in them. That's why many of you have turned to adoption to see the image of God and fight to preserve those human rights, the human dignity that's endowed to all people. It's why it's imperative that you vote and think through which policies will best serve to protect human rights and human dignity. We have to think about all of these things. But I'd also like to bring it a little bit closer to home this morning. You see, within much of Christianity, I think there's an impulse to see the depravity of man before we see the image of God in man. 
And let me remind you that Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. The image of God precedes the depravity of man. So in practical terms, when you see someone hitting hard times, do you first see a hurting person who's made in God's image, or do you see an unwise person who needs reform? You see, you can see people in the LGBTQ community as a threat, or you can see them as people made in the image of God who sin differently than you do. Or you can see people to your political left or your political right, and you can see their arrogance and their destructive behavior. Or you can see people made in the image of God who sin differently than you do. You can see people who are richer than you and think of their materialistic greed. Or you can see people poorer than you and think of their laziness and undisciplined spending. Or you can see people made in the image of God who sin differently than you do. You see, guys, I could do this all day. We could just go on and on and on. And what we do is we justify ourselves and tell ourselves that somebody else's sin is bad enough that I don't have to see the image of God in them. And this attitude simply is not Christian. It's a sinful attitude that must be put to death. Friend, you and all humanity are the crown of creation because you are made in the image of God to represent and to reflect him. But secondly, you're made not only in the image of God, but made to imitate God. You're made to imitate God. This refers to the activity that you've been called to. All right, so we look back at the scriptures to see what does God say about this? Where is this idea found in the Bible? Look at the second part of verse 26 in Genesis 1. We read God saying, and let them have dominion. That's an important word if you're a circler or an underwriter or a highlighter, grab that one. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then you drop down to verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion, same word again, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, what God has done, he says, what I've done in creation, I'm now commissioning you to go do in a similar way. We see this again in Psalm 8. We'll go back there again. I said I would do that over and over uh, on the screen. This is picking up in verse 6 of Psalm 8. We read, you have given him dominion, same word, over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This is often called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate, to have dominion, to rule over the earth, to subdue it. This idea of dominion has, carries like the connotation of a providential care. As God providentially cares over creation, you too have been commissioned to providentially care for creation, to have a stewardship of it. It does not mean that there's a domination of the created order for your personal benefit. Right? You care for it. You cultivate it. You imitate God. You're made in his image. 
because you want to be like him, as he's called you to be like him. You know, I think we see this a lot of times in kids. They want to reflect their parents. They want to be like them. They want to imitate them. Right, you see on the screen here, I found this page around our house not so long ago. Maybe you can read it. It says, from one of my kids, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, verses and meaning. They want to be like their dad. He's telling people what Genesis 1, 1 and 2 means, and they... Start doing that themselves. They're imitating their dad. That's what you've been called to do, to imitate your dad. Do the things that he does. So in practical terms, what exactly does it mean to have dominion over creation, to have providential care, to have a wise stewardship of creation? Well, start at the beginning. What did God do? He created life and then commissions you to go create life. He says, go get married and make babies. Look, it doesn't mean that you are in sin if you are single or childless, but marriage and children is the normative pattern that God has laid out to say, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In this way, fulfilling the cultural mandate is radically countercultural, is it not? In a world that says, don't get married, chase your own dreams, do what you want, don't have kids, they get in the way, they're a hassle, pursue your own dreams. Say, no, I'm going to imitate God. He created life, I will go and create life. Right? It's been said that making babies is fun and raising babies is hard. Sounds about right. And yes, it is hard. Right? Raising babies is expensive in time and energy and money, but it's worth it. It's so worth it because God has called you to that. But it doesn't merely stop there. What else have we seen God doing thus far in creation? He's bringing order out of the chaos. So you go into the chaos and bring order out of it. At your job, create orderly processes and fix broken things so that where there was chaos, you are bringing order out of it so that the earth may be filled and subdued. You may have dominion over all things. Recognize you're not just doing what your boss told you and what your job description says. You are fulfilling the cultural mandate that God has placed on your life. Parents, think about it this way. Every time you fold laundry, you are fulfilling the cultural mandate. You bring order out of the chaos. I'm serious. Every time you do the dishes, right? every time you pick up the toys again, it was chaotic, and you're bringing order out of it. There is deep meaning infused in that because you come home to a radically wrecked house, and it feels super chaotic like I can't think of anything. But isn't it so satisfying to finally have conquered the pile of laundry? Oh, it feels so good when, I mean, it doesn't happen frequently, but when it does, it feels great. I bring order out of the chaos because I'm doing what God has called me to do. God takes the formless, and he makes it beautiful. So you go make beautiful things. Right, it's easy to see only the functional side of life. But God loves beauty. He creates beautiful things and sends you to make beautiful things. So every time you volunteer at Northwest Community Park, you are helping to create beauty out of what was previously formless. Some of you remember four or five years ago, there was the abandoned house on the hill and it was ugly and nasty. That kind of area was formless. And as a church, we've come together and made something beautiful out of something that was formless. And you can continue to participate in that. Right? If you like landscaping or gardening, you're taking the formless and making it beautiful. If you enjoy cooking, you're taking formless ingredients 
and making them into something that's beautiful, both to look at and to smell and to taste. I think if you manage people well, if you're a boss and you've got people that work for you, as you manage them well, there's a formlessness to their work perhaps that you're helping them to create beauty out of their work and giving them the ability, the means, the wherewithal to go create beauty in other areas of your life. So manage people well to the glory of God, knowing that it's part of fulfilling the cultural mandate, not just what your boss requires and a way to hit a bigger bonus. There's all sorts of ways we see these things. What else does God do? He blesses the creation and says to you, look, man, just go find ways to bless the created order. So if you're in healthcare, you are blessing humanity by serving and meeting their needs. If you're in research, you're finding brand new ways, previously undiscovered ways to bring a blessing. He says, go bless all the earth. That's why Christians should recycle and care about preserving the earth, to bless what God has given as a fulfillment of the cultural mandate. You see, God has called you to more than getting a job to pay the bills so you can come home and check out. The cultural mandate is much bigger than that. So you create, you raise a family, you recognize that work doesn't end at five, it's just starting, actually. You recognize your gifting and a job not merely as a source of income, but a source of blessing, both during the work hours and beyond. You seek ways to use your gifting, whether your gifting is part of your job or not part of your job, or you don't have a job. There's a gifting that God has given to you, and you use it to bless others however you can. Friend, you and all humanity are the crown of creation because you were made to imitate God. That's the second point. Let's move to the third. You are made to live forever with God. So you're made in the image of God that refers to your being, your essence, who you are as a human and seeing that in others. Yes, you're also made to imitate God in your activity but you're also made to live forever with God. You're made to be in relationship. Again, back to, back to the scriptures, Genesis 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, let us make man in our image. Drop down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. How do we see this here in this, these verses I just highlighted? There's a personal nature to the creation of man. Every other time God is created, he said, let there be. This time he says, let us make. It's a kind of a foreshadowing of the Trinity, seeing Father, Son, Spirit at work, but there's a personal, relational component to your creation as a human being. Not merely, let there be mankind. No, come together, let us make. But then the second part, verse 27, says that you were created for relationship. Male and female, he created them. There's a relational component. You're meant to be in relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with fellow man. We just talked about your relationship to the created order. But the most important of any of those relationships is your relationship with God. 
And catch this, this is super important to see and to hear. Yes, you are made in the image of God, but Jesus is the very image of God. So you're created in the image of God, Jesus is the image of God. And this is important to see in this point. So we look at Colossians 1, verse 15. We simply read, he is the image of the invisible God. Not made in it, he is the image. Or Hebrews 1, 3, we read, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I love that. He's the exact imprint. You want to know what God looks like? See the person and work of Jesus Christ. And sadly, this, this image of God in us is marred by sin. The Bible calls seeking our own way to live. Instead of following the way of Jesus, we're following our own way. I, I was just out running yesterday, uh, and I was, I was listening to Imagine Dragons, and uh, their song, Whatever It Takes, came on. And I, I was thinking about this, this paradox that they described uh, towards the end. They said, I'm just a product of the system, a catastrophe and yet a masterpiece, and yet I'm half diseased. Do you hear that? They're grappling with the image of God in them. They were made for a relationship with God. They know they're broken. I'm a catastrophe. I feel the brokenness. And yet I know I'm a masterpiece. I perceive that in common grace. And yet even as I know I'm a masterpiece, I feel that I'm half diseased. They're grasping at this truth. And the thing that they don't realize is they're not half diseased. They're wholly diseased. And what the disease of sin does is it tells you that you're only half diseased and you can find your way out. It's like being in, in, a, in a pit and you're given a shovel and you try and dig your way out. That's what sin does to you. Yeah, I can find my way out. I just got to dig a little harder and you just keep going deeper. You need someone from the outside to reach in and to help you out. Not merely to help you out, but actually pull you out. And if you know that song at all, you know they say, I'm going to do whatever it takes because I love how it feels to break the chains. Like, no, you can't break the chains. You're not strong enough. You can't do it. You're grasping at the truth. You're hinting at it, but you're coming up short. This is why the very image of God, Jesus himself, would come to earth recognizing that we are a catastrophe and we can't earn our way to God. And he would have to come and live the masterpiece of a life that we couldn't live take the whole disease of sin onto himself to bring us back to God. Right, you think, about, you think about having COVID and some of you would see somebody get sick with COVID and think, man, you should have got the vaccine. Others would see them get sick and say, you should have taken ivermectin, but you both agree you needed something outside of you to conquer it. That's sort of how the disease of sin works in your life. And so C.S. Lewis would famously say, he says, the son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. There's no other way to be who you were created to be in perfect relationship with God were it not for the very image of God himself, God himself, to come and restore and recreate that image in you. So if you were to contrast this with Darwinian evolution and natural selection, you might say that natural selection says the survival of the fittest by the sacrifice of the weakest, and Christianity flips that on its head and says, no, it's the, survi it's the survival of the weakest, us, by the sacrifice of the strongest, Jesus, 
who came and lived the life that you couldn't, died the death you should have, so that you could survive and be remade into the perfect image of God that you were created to be. That's beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. There's only one way to get there. It's through Jesus Christ. But it's important if you're here as a Christian that you remember that salvation is not merely being rescued from hell. Yes, it is that, but it's more. It's a restoration of the full image of God in you. You see, being a Christian means that you're being remade into the full image of God. That's what it means to grow in Christ-likeness. That's why Ephesians 4, Paul would write, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Why does he say that? Because we're all filled with false righteousness, false holiness, thinking we are pretty good, and to grow into Christ is to put on the new self created fully in his likeness where there's true righteousness and true holiness where we look ahead to one day being fully made like Jesus when he comes back. And John would write in 1 John 3, say, Beloved, we are God's children now. And this has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You will be, if you are a Christian, fully remade into the image of God, the full masterpiece, no longer half-diseased. Friends, you are the crown of creation because you were made to live forever with God. Don't miss the utter magnitude of what's being said here. Don't merely hop from your job to your home to your hobby. Don't waste your life. Don't see your life as an experiment in paying the bills, meeting some nice people, and hoping for some fun times along the way. No, don't do that. See the bigger story that you've been created into and called to live out, that you are nobility in God's eyes. You're the crown of creation. You're made in his image. You're made to imitate him. You're made to live with him forever. So as we start to to wrap this up before we head to communion, I just want you to think about this. It all starts and ends with Jesus. He is the image of God. And maybe you don't know him as such. Maybe you've never cried out to him and recognized that the son of God became a man so that you could become a son of God, that he died for you to forgive you of your sins and bring you into right, right relationship with him. Today can be the day that you, for the first time, know Jesus as your Savior, and it will change your life. And I would love to talk to you after the service about that. You could pray to him right now. But for a lot of us as Christians, I wonder if you've actually thought through Jesus and his work as the centerfold of how you imitate God, how you fulfill the cultural mandate, how you imitate him, how you bring order out of chaos, how you give beauty to that which is formless, how you seek to bless others. Are you just kind of merely walking through life, punching the clock of the commitments you're supposed to be at and losing sight of the grand story that God has called you into? I wonder, even thinking back to our first point a bit, have you lost sight of the value of human dignity? Not that you deny it, you just don't fight for it like you should. It's not at the forefront of your mind. How do I see the image of God in others? Who are the them that it's easy for me to see the depravity and then before I see the image of God in them? 
as we go to communion here in just a moment, we'll give you some silence, some time to think, to reflect on the actual image of God, the Son of God who became a man, so that men could become the sons of God, to recreate in you the true image of God. And friends, I just urge you, don't sit under the preaching of the word of God and walk away without an action plan. You look to Jesus, the author, perfecter of your faith, yes, he's the, the beginning and the end, but he's called you to action too. What does it mean for you this week to live in light of the truth that you are made in the image of God, you're made to imitate God, and you're made to live forever with God? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us with an immeasurable and an unending love. We thank you that you've made us in your image to imitate you, to live forever with you. And I, I ask this morning, even as we have some silence here, that the cold wouldn't distract anyone from thinking about the truth of your word and how it changes our lives. Help us to see you clearly and to be changed by your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.